This is Ask a Biologist, a program about the living world, and I'm Dr. Biology. Today we have the opportunity to do some time traveling. In this case, we're going to be traveling back in time, and not just for a short trip. We're going to be going back as far as 50 million years. What's the occasion for the journey? Well, my guest has been exploring the world around 50 million years ago. He's been learning about insects living at that time. Oh, and by the way, scientists call that period of time the Eocene epoch. And while he's been back there, what's he been doing? He's been studying tiny insects, some of which are smaller than the nail on your little finger. He also has an interesting story about a giant insect. Well, giant by our standards, and you might be asking, how large? Well, how about an ant that's five centimeters long, which is about two inches, or using our hand analogy, the size of an adult thumb? Along with his work with insects, he's been studying the climate these animals lived in and their diversity. In other words, how many different kinds of species of insects lived during the Eocene epoch? My guest today is Bruce Archibald. He is a paleoentomologist in the Department of Biological Sciences at Simon Fraser University. In case paleoentomology is new to you, paleo means old or ancient, and entomology is the study of insects. So Bruce spends his time studying ancient insects and the world they lived in. Today we learn how this paleoentomologist travels back in time and what he's discovered. Welcome to Ask a Biologist, Bruce Archibald, and thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Thank you, Dr. Biology. Let's get started with just a couple words, just so that we have uh, some of our vocabulary down. Mm-hmm. Uh, first is biodiversity, and the reason I bring it up is you hear it a lot, but I think it's good to know a little bit more what we're saying. So what is biodiversity and why do biologists talk so much about it? Wow. Well, there's a lot of different ways of defining it. I'm looking at it in terms of species richness in a community, and that is uh, how many species are you packing together. But there's a lot of different ways that people define biodiversity depending on the kinds of questions they're asking. Species richness in in a community is sort of the thumbnail sketch of how I'm looking at it. Right. So it's not just the number of species, but the number of different kinds of species. Mm -hmm. It comes up because if we talk about the tropics, it's not uncommon for them to say it's a very rich environment. It's very biodiverse. Absolutely. And then if you move further north, you end up with less biodiversity. And so that's part of the reason that that term gets used. I agree that it's not necessarily the, the only reason. The other thing is I talked about us traveling back in time, mm-hmm. um, but I want to be really more accurate. Do you have a time machine? Well, I've got the fossil record. Exactly. So you do get to go back in time by studying those fossils, right? You bet, yeah. And that's the next best thing to a time machine. It certainly is, absolutely. And in some cases, maybe even easier because they don't run away, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they don't. Let's talk a little bit about what is a fossil And how are they made? Fossils, the way I define them and look at them, are the remains of animals and plants or fungi or anything that was living or their works that are found from a long time ago. Now, their works might mean their trackways or the nests of, for example, a bee that might be found as a fossil. Or if you find a fossil leaf and it's all torn up from chewing marks, that might tell you a lot about the insects we're feeding there at that time. So that's 
the fossil is not only the leaf, but the fossil is the trace of the behavior left behind by those insects as well. So the word fossil can cover a wide range of things which tell you about life in the past. And how they're made. You know, how do fossils get made? There are a lot of different ways in which fossils are made. For example, a lot of the fossils that I look at, they were in a forest surrounding a lake, and the leaves and the insects maybe blew out or flew out over the lake and landed on the surface and then floated for a short while in the surface tension, then sank down through the water column to the mud below, and then each year a little bit more of this dust-like mud would settle over them. And eventually the lake basin fills up with sediment, and then that gets compressed, and that mud squished and turned into stone. And so that's one way that fossils are made. Fossils can also be made in other environments, like in a marine and oceanic setting, or in amber, for example, which is uh, the resin of trees. They get stuck in there like a sticky trap and covered over by the resin, and then that winds up in maybe a coal swamp where the trees get turned into coal. And so there's a lot of different ways in which life can be preserved from the past. Or like I say, trackways, for example, walking along a muddy riverbank, and that uh, muddy riverbank gets filled in with sediment and then exposed millions of years later. So what makes a good fossil? <laughs> well, once again, depends on the questions you want to ask. A good fossil leaf for a paleobotanist might be one which is very complete and whole. A good fossil leaf for someone who studies insect behavior might be one that's all eaten up. So that would be a good one for that person. For me, I look at insect body fossils, that is the actual insects themselves. And what I want to see is something that's clearly preserved so that I can see the minute details and um, is as complete as possible because a lot of fossils are, you know, mushed up, to use the scientific term, or um, incomplete because of the way the rocks split or whatever. And you often need to see a lot of the structures, the fine structures, to understand what that insect was. So a good fossil for me has got enough for me to really tell who it was and, and what it's related to today. That brings me to a really great point, and that's how much detail can be captured mm -hmm. in a fossil. So let's, let's go back to basically something that's stone, right? We won't do the amber. What kind of resolution can you get? And let's say compared to film or a really good digital camera. You can get amazingly good fossil insects. In fact, modern entomologists are often shocked when I show them some of the fossils of insects because they can't understand how good these can be. I can get tiny wasps that are maybe uh, four or five millimeters long in which I can look down to the wings and see the tiny hairs on the wing membranes. Would it rival film? Yeah. I, you know, some of the insects that I'm looking at is really limited by the lenses and the microscopes. There's more detail there than I can see with the gear that I've got to look at them. Oh, so optically, we can't even get to the level of resolution that the fossils have. You bet. And uh, gear will get better and better, and we'll be able to know more and more. It's, that's why we put these things away in drawers, and maybe in 100 years' time, someone will have some super space-age uh, equipment and to be able to do a lot more than I could do with them today. Ah, the future paleobotanist <laughs> or the paleoentomologist. That's right. This is actually a, a fun topic because... A lot of people have seen fossils, 
they've seen amber on, oh, for example, Jurassic Park is a classic right. where they yes. see the amber. Absolutely. And then stone, it's not unusual to go out to uh, trade shows and other places where people have actually sell them as pieces of art because they're actually beautiful pieces out there. Mm-hmm. But the other place you see them, as you mentioned, in the drawers, tucked away in the Natural History Museums. Mm-hmm. A lot of times you don't even get to see them because maybe they're not the pristine, beautiful piece, the whole specimen that you get to see, but mm-hmm. they have a lot of information in them. So what I'm curious about is why are museum fossil collections so important? Oh, wow. Well, they're super important. For example, there's not that many people who look at fossil insects like myself. And so some of these fossil sites, there'll be uh, there's a lot more paleobotanists who look at the fossil plants. Paleobotanists will go to a site and collect these leaves and, and other plant material. And then they'll see, oh, there's a bunch of insects here. Well, I'll just stick them aside in the box. And so those go into a museum collection, and they might sit there for 50 years or 80 years or 100 years until the right pair of eyes comes along and sees them. But as long as they're safely and carefully stored in that museum with the right database, somebody will come along one of these days and say, ah, I know what that is, and I'm able to work on that. I find that really interesting because I think some of your work, you've even gone back to some early collections that they gathered as much information at the time, and then you've revisited it. and you Absolutely. Have, and so it reiterates the fact that it's not always that we're changing the answers or what we know. We're just getting better tools to understand better what we have in front of us. That's right. And sometimes we do change the answers because we have better equipment to ask the questions more finely. And, uh, of course, in science, everything is sort of uh, the best knowledge we've got at the time best answers we have available. And sometimes we can get better answers either by theoretical advances, people understood things better, or sometimes just equipment gets better. You know, back in Galileo's time, he could see a certain amount with his telescopes, but now we've got the Hubble and our answers are, are more precise. They're, we can do more stuff. Right. We were just talking about microscopes as well. And oh, so yeah. Robert Hooke and uh, Anton van Leeuwenhoek. Hook. Yeah. yeah, it was interesting because uh, that's a fun story in itself because what you could see then, you could see cells, but you couldn't see inside cells. And so now we've gotten, right. you, know, you get into the organelles and then within the organelles, you can get into the DNA and it goes on and on, all with better instruments. I should just uh, interject this here for a second. We were talking about uh, uh, mosquitoes in, in amber and the, the whole uh, Jurassic Park thing. Well, that actually happened in a certain sense. And, but now I'm talking about a shale fossil, a fossil in rock. And that was a friend of mine, Dale Greenwald, who works at the um, Smithsonian, was looking at shales about the same age as I'm looking at in British Columbia, a little bit younger, in Montana. And he found mosquitoes there. And those shales are, I believe, about 47 million years old. And he is a geochemist. So he was able to look at these fossil mosquitoes and do some sort of analysis and find the iron compound in this mosquito's gut was a blood meal. And he was able to do that and get to that level to see this ancient mosquito's last meal. Wow. Let's go back to our museums. Yes. Turns out that uh, not uncommon that you go and visit other museums and look at their collections. Sure. And we're going to talk about one of your finds, and that is 
by today's standards, a giant ant. Oh, yeah. You bet it was giant. It's not like, um, oh, there's a 1954 movie called Them where it's mm-hmm. these giant ants. I mean, The they're size like, of a tank or yeah, something. Yeah, the size like. of a tank. These aren't like that. But it's still an amazing find. There really is an interesting story with these ants. Mm-hmm. So can we talk a little bit about them? Well, as you mentioned, I found this specimen in a museum drawer. I was visiting the uh, Denver Museum of Nature and Science. I think, I don't know its formal name, Culture, Nature, and Science or something. And uh, the paleobotanist there, Kirk Johnson at the time, he said, uh, yeah, we got this great big uh, fossil insect. We want you to take a look at it. And I went, oh, that sounds pretty good. And I went down and I looked at it and I immediately knew, ah, I know what this is. It was a, one of these giant ants. And I knew it because they had been found in Germany and they were pretty famous from Germany. But uh, there had been a wing of a ant related to that found from uh, North America, but it was a smaller one. It was a small relative, but none of these giant ones before. The wings are also known from uh, Britain, I believe, from the UK. At any rate, I, I saw this and I thought, oh my God, okay, here these ants have come over from Germany at some point, or which way we don't know, or from here to Germany or from Germany to here. And so I recognized this ant right off the bat. Can you tell me a little bit about what the ant would look like today? Sure. If you got to see it. In fact, if you took a little bird and you plucked its feathers and set it next to this ant, this ant would be the size of that little wren or maybe a little chubbier. So the queen ants have wings. They're flying ants. And so flying along, they would have been very impressive. I named this ant Titanomyrma lubii. The name Lubii was named after Mr. Lube, finder of the fossil. But Titanomyrma was sort of a fun name. Myrma is, just means ant. And Titano means, well, titan of the ants. I found out recently that it was actually used in a video game. But uh, in that game, they show the ant as being the size of a dog, which, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun. We're talking 50 million years ago. And if we think about today... Mm-hmm. How does an ant get from Germany to North America mm-hmm. today is different than what could have happened back You today. bet. You bet. I should just mention also that I found it in the drawer of the Denver Museum, but it was unearthed in Wyoming. That was where the fossil was found. And once again, it, it was a roughly 50 million or so years ago. So that turned out to be a very interesting story about how the distribution changes of animals and plants. At that time, that's called the Eocene Epoch is the name of that time. In the early part of the Eocene Epoch, the North America and Europe was connected by land. Now, I'm sure your listeners may be aware that continents move by tectonic forces as continental drift, and the Atlantic Ocean has been opening up, and Europe and North America are moving away from each other. And that's kind of a good fun fact. If you take your thumbs and put them so that the pointy ends of your thumbs are apart from each other, the two thumbnails are growing away from each other at about the same rate that Europe and North America are separating from each other. Isn't that a good fun fact? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at any rate, back then, 50 million years ago, Europe and North America were still connected, but they were connected through Greenland. You could walk 
from here in Arizona all the way to, uh, you know, Spain or whatever through forest all the way without getting your feet wet. This was also a time when uh, there was low sea level around the world for a bunch of other geologic reasons. So you had low sea level and the continents closer together formed these land bridges. Now, actually, that didn't last that long, geologically speaking. So uh, it was a, an interval of time when we had this connection available, both through the closeness of the continents and the lowered sea level. But we have a tendency, when we think of time these days, we think seconds, minutes, years. Mm-hmm. In this case, it's how long for this land bridge? Oh, boy. Yeah, I'm gonna, uh, I, you know, it could have been 10 million years or so. I'm... So, an instant in time. <laughs> Geologic time. That's right. Yeah. Paleontologically speaking. And like I say, forest across the Arctic, and probably forest right up to the Arctic Ocean at that time. There was no ice sheets or harsh winters at that time. So, there was all of this uh, plants and animals able to extend their ranges across the pole and make a sort of a common range between Europe and North America at that time. And a lot of things that we see Today, kinds of trees or those sorts of things which are in common between the continents may have, at that time, expanded their ranges in that way. Now, it was still sort of temperate, so things that lived in hotter climates would have found it difficult to cross that northern land bridge because the climate may have been similar to that of, say, I don't know, uh, Portland, Oregon today or so. If you like to live in a tropical climate like uh, Brazil, you might find it hard to to, uh, migrate through an area that has the climate like Portland. So this big ant tells a pretty interesting story about how plants and animals are arranged between the continents today and the different kinds with different climate tolerances may be arranged between the continents. All right, so let's switch gears just a bit. You have another project. It's also with fossils. And it's, again, around the same period of time, about 50 million years ago. It has to deal with seasons, temperatures, and biodiversity. Can you tell me a little bit about what you've learned? So what I looked at in the project that I did is I looked at climate and how climate might affect biodiversity as it changes from the tropics into the temperate zone into higher latitudes. And as you mentioned, there's two climatic factors that really differ. One is the amount of sunlight and heat there is greater in the tropics. And the other is that it has very low temperature difference between summer and winter. So if you're down in Costa Rica, for example, the average yearly temperature is maybe about 26 degrees, 25, 26 degrees. So that's really hot. It's hot there all year round. Right. So in Fahrenheit, that's around 78 degrees. All right. And your coldest month average temperature is only about a degree below that, and your warmest month a degree above that. So your fluctuation from your coldest to your warmest month is only a couple of degrees. So even in Fahrenheit, that's like, what, 75 to 79 or something like that. It's not a whole lot. No. But in you get up into the temperate zone here, and you're going to have these wild fluctuations, maybe uh, 28, 30 degrees or so centigrade. 48 degrees. I can tell you right now when you do that. It's, you know, if you do 20 degrees, you're going to be around 68 degrees Fahrenheit. Yeah. And then how cold, maybe? 
Well, I, yeah, it depends on where you are in the northern hemisphere, but you might get the coldest month mean temperature about, uh, I don't know, minus seven or so. Right. So that's 19 degrees Fahrenheit. So Okay. So you need a coat. You definitely do. And by mean temperature, in that coldest month, the average temperature, each day can be colder or hotter. So you can have drop down to uh, pretty cold days within that cold month. Right. Certainly below freezing. You bet. So the point is, is that we have this wild fluctuation between summer and winter, and it gets stronger and stronger as you move from the equator away into the north or to the south. So both of these things change. As you mentioned, the variables, the heat and light coming in is one variable. How does that affect biodiversity? Or temperature seasonality increases as your biodiversity drops. Is that the cause? Now, there's various explanations. For example, the heat and light hypothesis idea might be that you have this luxuriant growth, and so you have big populations, and you can have big populations of things that would be rare, and so that it allows for lots of different species to live together. Well, there's one explanation. Or the seasonality explanation might be that when you get into northern areas, you have this wide range between summer and winter, and so you want more generalists. You want fewer kinds of things, but those things that are there can live in lots of different types of environment. So that means less species, even if you've got lots of individuals, less species together. There are the types of explanations people have, and it's really hard to separate. It's really hard to figure out which might be the case. So, we go to the ancient world where we may be able to find an answer and break this logjam and find a way of examining this. And that's what I did for this project. I sampled insects in Costa Rica in a lowland tropical jungle today. And I sampled insects in Massachusetts in a temperate zone a forest by a lake. And these are modern insects. And then I sampled fossil insect community in British Columbia, Canada, and this fossil community lived at a time in an upland, in this cool upland, where the average yearly temperature is about the same as uh, Seattle today or Portland or Vancouver. But the seasonality was extremely low. Very, very mild winters. You maybe didn't need a sweater. Of course, that doesn't mean much sitting in here in Arizona <laughs> to say you didn't need a sweater. But, you know, if you have the average temperature like Vancouver to say you didn't need a sweater in the winter, that's saying something. So what I wanted to know is, was the biodiversity of these insects like it is today in the temperate zone? So the common factor would be the coolness of the fossil site and the modern temperate zone. Or was the biodiversity high like it is in the modern tropics? And then the common factor would be the low seasonality, the fact that the summer and the winter aren't very different. And so it was by having this third sample site that I could try and understand which of these two variables is associated with change in biodiversity. And the answer? To make a long story short, this was a big, long project. Right. How many years did you spend on this? Well, I, uh, it was about seven years, I think. Okay. Altogether. I just want people to realize that you just didn't go out. It was something overnight. Well, I had to collect massive amounts of insects in all of these places, and I'd assign them all to species level and work them up. And it was a very fun project, but it, it was also a, a long time. That's science. <laughs> so what you're getting at the answer here is that the biodiversity in this temperate, coolish upland of ancient British Columbia 
was similar to that of a modern lowland tropical rainforest. So there were a lot of different kinds of species. There was tremendous numbers of species packed into these communities. And so this indicates this change in biodiversity we see across the globe today may be associated more with stability, temperature, seasonality, than with the heat and light of the tropics. Right. The wider the swing between hot and cold in a particular location Mm -hmm. is going to have an impact on the number of species that you'll be able to have in that location. That's right. And how it is that living things respond to this forcing factor, this triggering mechanism, we don't yet know. Why it might be that seasonality could affect diversity in that way, that's another project for one of your listeners to go to grad school and figure out. Seriously, there's a lot of interesting projects out there still undone, and that's one of them. Also, I love to do everything twice. And by that, I mean, uh, you know, you, you want to do something and then confirm it with another angle. So not only did I take the insect samples and specimens, but also leaf samples, working with a paleobotanist, uh, Dr. David Greenwood, out of uh, Brandon, Manitoba. And uh, for part of this project, we looked at the broadleaf tree diversity and found that that actually was more similar to the tropical parts of Queensland, Australia, than it is to Massachusetts. So this was the second confirming uh, aspect of this study. We looked at plants as well. I love the fact that you left something for the future paleobotanist (laughs) or paleoentomologist to do. Yes. That leads me into a part of the show that I love doing with all my scientists. And so we have three questions. Oh, okay. All right. And you have not prepped me on these. I never prep my (laughs) scientists. I want you to think on your feet. The first one is, when did you first know you wanted to be a biologist or if you already knew you are going to be a, an entomologist or a paleoentomologist? Oh, what was the aha moment? Uh-huh. Well, I certainly liked these things when I was little. I was very interested in insects and animals and plants. But in a general sort of way, I didn't have a particular liking for one over the other. And uh, I was very fortunate in having parents who read books to me when I was really little about nature and the natural world. And that was a really good thing. But, you know, when I was a little kid, I liked to watch nature shows and that kind of stuff and like to get out in the woods. But I kind of put that in the background until I was older, until I was grown up. And then I um, started to become more and more interested by reading books on fossils. And I decided to go out looking for fossils near where I lived in Vancouver. And sure enough, I found a variety of fossil insects. And I thought these were really great. And I thought, man, there's got to be a lot of things you could tell from these. And I took them around to local universities. And uh, I was very much encouraged by the people there. They said, well, maybe this is something you should follow up on. And it was very nice to get that encouragement because I didn't believe I could do it. Part of it was realizing that there was very little known about these fossil insects and that there was a big opportunity there to uh, do the work and to figure out new things. And that was one of the things that surprised me getting into science altogether. I thought pretty well everything was known, or a lot more was known. The more I got into it, the more I realized that we're still in the golden age of discovery and that there's a lot of great fundamental questions out there to approach and to try and work on And uh, that is not going to go away anytime soon. How old were you when you went out on your first fossil digs or hunt? Oh, well, I was growing up. Uh, Let's see. 
And I might have been like 40 years old. Oh, so you came back to it definitely later I on. came back to it as a grown-up, absolutely. I spent many years away from it. And there were a lot of people saying, oh, you can't do that. But they were wrong. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm glad you decided to come back and do it. But now I'm going to take it all away. Oh, okay. Yeah, right? Yeah. You can't be a biologist, mm -hmm. and so all the forms of being a biologist. And most of my biologists love to teach, so I'm going to take mm -hmm. the teaching away just so you can't slide into that. Mm -hmm. So this is where you get to stretch. If you could do anything, what would you be? What would you do? Wow. I'd love to be a cook. Although I'd have to say I don't think I would be – I don't know that I would be that good at it, but you could always try. I think to me, cooking is about the most creative thing that you can do and it has this immediacy because you eat it up and it's gone. And people who are really good cooks amaze me because they can go into a fridge and just see what's there and they turn out something wonderful because they've got that ability to put it together and that creative mind and uh, I admire that. It's an important point. I think uh, scientists that are creative are also the most successful. It shares the aspect that what you really need, I think, to be a good scientist is the same, and that is the ability to see the connection between things that other people might think are unrelated. You see one thing over here and one thing over there, and you think, ah, oh, what if we combine them? Or, oh, what if we use that technique? It's the ability to make those connections. So the last question. All right. And this is a perfect one for you. <laughs> All right. And the reason why is you came to your current career later in life, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So yeah. I always ask, what advice would you have for a future biologist or paleontologist or entomologist? And in your case, someone maybe who's been doing it as a hobby, mm -hmm. it did it when they were younger, and now they think, hmm, you know, I'd like to do that for my... Full time. Yeah. What advice would I give? The advice that I would give is do the thing that excites you the most. And the reason I say that is because going through university is a lot of hard work. And if you enjoy it, if you like it, if you're excited by your goal, you won't mind that. You'll find that hard work also pretty fun because you're flexing your muscles. It's like going to the gym, but you got to put in that effort. If you're not really excited, it's not going to work. You're not going to have that gasoline within you to make you go. So my advice would be to pick what really excites you, what really makes you excited to do. Bruce Archibald, thank you very much for visiting with me today. Thank you, Dr. Biology. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Ask a Biologist, and my guest has been Bruce Archibald, paleoentomologist in the Department of Biological Sciences at Simon Fraser University. Bruce has been here visiting ASU to give a talk at our new Natural History Collections facility. Now, if you want to learn more about giant insects, journey on over to our story on prehistoric insects called Big, Big Bugs. This is where you'll get to learn about insects that lived over 300 million years ago. The address to the story is pretty long, so here's the easy way to do it. Just do a search on prehistoric insects and then type Ask a Biologist with it. We'll be a number one hit. The Ask a Biologist podcast is produced on the campus of Arizona State University and is recorded in the Grassroots Studio, housed in the School of Life Sciences, which is an academic unit of the College of Liberal Arts and Sciences. And remember, even though our program is not broadcast live, you can still send us your questions about biology using our companion website.
The address is askabiologist.asu.edu, or you can just Google the words Ask a Biologist. I'm Dr. Biology.